Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. and welcome to this episode of Law Pod. I'm Dr. Rachel Kalina, lecturer here in the School of Law and I'm joined today by Dr. Tanya Cerisier. She's over doing a talk about her new book which is called uh, Speaking Out and talks about the political narratives of speaking out against sexual violence. So we thought it'd be nice just to catch up with her and hear a little bit about her book. So hi Tanya. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I wonder if you could just start by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, um, so I am a senior lecturer in criminology at Birkbeck College, which is part of the University of London, and I work there mainly on, um, I suppose, the cultural politics of sexual violence. So I work on speaking out, but I also work on things like movements around consent and um, the way that ideas about acceptable and unacceptable sex have changed. Um, particularly in the last kind of 50 to 100 years. And before that, I was actually working here in Queens in criminology. And originally, as you might be able to tell, I was from Australia. So I did my PhD at Monash University there. And what was it that originally got you interested then in this uh, speaking out as a response to sexual violence? Well, it's a very (laughs) particular but long story. So I finished my undergraduate degree and... um, I wasn't really sure exactly what I was going to do. And so I was working in the community sector, actually, in um, women's health and rape crisis centres. And at the time, I was living in Sydney. And so this is kind of towards the beginning of um, the 2000s. And there were some very, very prominent um, trials there of um, basically a couple of groups of young men one group of whom were Lebanese Muslim and one group of whom were predominantly Pakistani Muslim. And it turned into a, um, you know, I suppose a classic moral panic around kind of an epidemic of Muslim gang rapes going around. And the media and politicians and the police claimed that they were um, racially targeting young white women. Now, this wasn't true, but... It became a big problem, you know, for feminists and for those of us, I suppose, kind of on the progressive end of politics in terms of how to respond. And what frustrated me was that the response from kind of feminist organizations was to try to interject into this narrative and try to say, well, it's not only Muslim men who rape women, you know, all men do, but at the same time, when these trials produced kind of the longest sentence that had ever happened in New South Wales, which is a particular jurisdiction in Australia, for sexual violence, and when the state government brought in a whole raft of new legislation, predominantly which targeted gangs rather than sexual violence. So it increased the sentence for gang rape from 15 years to life, but it also brought in other things like made it possible for police to stop a car if it had three or more young people in it, and, you know, those kinds of classic anti-gang legislation. So it was very, very... It was very racially motivated and very targeted. And it was all bound up at the time in kind of discourse around terrorism and the war on terror. And 
you know, so my colleagues and friends were kind of protesting outside the trial in favour of these very long sentences and, you know, in favour of speaking out. And it just seemed to me a real kind of failure, I guess, to actually see what the problem was and what was at stake. And it seemed very obvious to me that not only was this, you know, racist, but it wasn't actually going to improve things for you know, survivors and victims of sexual violence. So that is what brought me back into um, the academy, I suppose, and what prompted me to start working on the PhD. And so the PhD was really started in terms of kind of what went wrong in this particular instance and thinking about, you know, feminist politics and what kind of sat at the heart of it. And that's where I got interested in the idea of speaking out, you know, and thinking about, okay, this idea that, you know, if women tell their stories of violence, that it's going to lead to these kind of automatic, you know, progressive changes. But seeing these stories being used, you know, because they were very kind of racist and right-wing commentators at the time who were saying that they were the champions of these young women, you know, and they were bringing them forward and retelling and telling their stories, but in order to further a very different agenda. And... um so that was the impetus and what got me interested in it. And as I kind of looked into it more and more, it just became, um, I suppose, fascinating to me that it was such an unquestioned kind of centre of feminist politics in activism, in academia, everywhere, but no one had done any kind of critical work on it. It just, you know, was this thing that people said, you know, we value the stories of victims and survivors, but weren't actually looking at the effects of those stories culturally and politically weren't actually looking at the effects of speaking out on individual women just presuming that it would be empowering and in a sense were kind of claiming to take the stories really seriously but weren't actually engaging with them so there was this presumption that if you were a survivor and you were telling your story obviously you would think these particular things you know these kinds of feminist assumptions but actually survivors who speak out have all kinds of different politics and different ideas and so um yeah so it just opened up this really kind of big area of research and so that was a very long answer to no, your question it was, fascinating. It, was it was making me think when you were talking as well about what happened here around the trial of the Ulster yeah. rugby players and I was thinking about seeing a feminist space that I associate with being progressive turn punitive yeah and that connection that can sometimes be made between people that want to advocate for sexual violence survivors and against rape and you know gender-based violence how they can sometimes end up aligned with quite right-wing discourses and how you can push back against that without then sounding like you are you know a rape apologist or you know saying that it's fine and it, it can be very difficult to carve out a space to have those types of conversations and try and broaden it out to well these yes this person did a bad thing but that doesn't mean that necessarily really harsh sentencing or new punitive laws are going to stop the harm that was done to the victim mm. and actually you've ended up furthering things that actually might not really align with who you are politically actually yeah. or what's appropriate for a kind of progressive feminist movement so I see, I see that happening yeah here and as well. I mean yeah it happens a lot I think and it's one of the things that I do talk about in the book you know the response to Emily Doe particularly this um the survivor of the Stanford swimmer 
assault and the way that she tells a story which is actually very critical of the law and legal responses and it gets taken up you know and it goes viral but the campaigns that arise out of that are all about increasing punitive measures and that's kind of you know and recalling the judge involved in the case but only because you know he didn't give a harsh enough sentence and not thinking really about the kind of underlying problems around that or yeah absolutely Um, well, yeah, thank you. That was fascinating. I wonder then, maybe could you tell us a little bit about what you, you've already kind of touched on it, but what kind of themes are, are present in your book and what areas you focus on? Yeah, so I'm trying to think about the actual structure of the book. So what I do in the book is it's in two halves and the first half is about, I suppose, trying to chart a bit of a history of speaking out, so beginning with the second wave feminist movements and consciousness raising, you know, and the creation of a space for women to speak originally, you know, first within feminist movements, but also with media attention and then kind of tracing that through the 1980s and early 1990s where you see those narratives begin to go out into, you know, more kind of commercial and mainstream media spaces. So, you know, newspapers, magazines, talk shows, And that's a real, in some ways, a real victory that's dissemination, but it also brings up more kind of complicating factors, you know, because you find, you know, for instance, survivors on talk shows speaking and telling their stories and seeing them, you know, which relates to what we were talking about before, getting framed in very different ways, you know, and seeing themselves kind of just presented as this kind of spectacle, you know. Um, And then moving forward and thinking about... um, you know, coming into then the era of social media as well. And then in the second half of the book, I try to unpack some of the political problems that we've been talking about a bit more. So, you know, thinking about um, the fact that, you know, we tend to presume with speaking out that it's going to do at least three things. You know, it's going to be individually empowering for women. And actually, as I've kind of said, you know, when you look, it's a lot more complicated than that. You know, it's empowering, but it's also an incredibly vulnerable position. And you know, people can feel very much that they get trapped in those stories, that they can only express themselves in a particular way, that, you know, people feel like they know who they are and what's happened to them. And that identity of being a survivor of rape precludes and kind of takes over everything else. So the second thing is, you know, that if individual women speak, it's going to open up a space for other women to speak and, you know, it's going to get rid of all the stigma and shame and we're going to be able to tell our stories. And so one of the things that I look at is the way that... um, if you think about these stories as stories, and so if you think about them as a genre, a collection of stories, that genre, you know, includes stories, but it also has boundaries and limits and excludes stories as well. So I try to trace the way that particular kinds of stories, you know, remain a lot more tellable than others. And that's about who speaks, um, you know, and particularly around questions of race and class, that the stories that get told tend to be predominantly stories that have actually always been more tellable in the courts, you know, stories by, you know, middle class white women of stranger rapes, rather than more complicated stories, rather than stories by women of colour, rather than stories, you know, by women who aren't seen to be respectable, and also stories that fit within those kinds of criminal justice narratives. Um, <coughs> sorry, I've had a little bit of a cold. Okay. And, you know, the third thing, which we've touched on as well, is that telling these stories is going to produce a new, more progressive politics of rape, you know, that's going to shift culture and politics. And so the uh, the final thing that I try to look at is the ways in which that doesn't necessarily happen and the ways in which these kinds of stories, you know, end up coming within 
you know, older, powerful narratives around stranger danger, around who we think of as typical criminals, you know, reasserting this idea not that, you know, sexual violence is a problem of the everyday and the normal, but it's a problem of these kinds of deviant strangers who can be dealt with by the criminal law. And so one of the ways that I look at that right at the end of the book is the kind of 2016 election with Donald Trump and, you know, saying that, you know, when firstly women began to tell their stories about sexual harassment with Trump, I think there was a presumption amongst kind of Democrats and liberals that this was going to be the end of Trump. And actually people took those stories and, you know, they heard and read them in very different ways, you know, depending on their politics. And it goes back, you know, to that original story that I was telling, you know, that kind of prompted my work is you can hear those stories and think, you know, sexual violence is wrong or you can hear those stories and you can have, as was in the kind of dominant media discourse at the time, you know, Arab and Muslim men are raping our women and, you know, and this is, and it actually reasserts these kinds of gendered logics. So, um, so it proceeds through a series of case studies, really. Wow. Wow. It sounds, it sounds fascinating. Um, I guess just to tease out a couple of the threads and some of the stuff that you were talking about there for, I suppose because it's law pod and it's our law students might be listening to this. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about your focus on the legal process. So what kinds of opportunities did you see being given to survivors to talk about what happened to them and what are the limits of a, of a legal response to this type of violence? I think, I mean, the, the question, I think, of the law is really interesting. And again, you know, it's more complicated than we often give it credit for. So... You know, when early second wave feminists begin to speak about rape and begin to tell their stories, and this remains a theme, you know, one of the things that they're talking about is the denial and dismissal of these stories by the law. And I think those kinds of criticisms of the kind of rape myth that are promoted by law, you know, the low conviction rates, the way that testifying in trial is really traumatizing, you know, we know those kinds of criticisms and critiques and they're part of it. So part of what feminists do, I think, when they begin to speak publicly and they begin to do things like try to get their stories into mass media, is actually to decenter the law as the only place in which women can tell their stories and get any kind of redress because it simply wasn't working. And in decentering the law, it's also about disputing the law's right to be the arbiter of these truth claims, actually saying, you know, the law doesn't stand above these stories and judge them neutrally, but the law has this, you know, inherent bias against women's stories. And, you know, it goes back to those very famous, you know, common law quotes from Sir Matthew Hale, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but, you know, that um, that rape is a terrible crime, but it's an allegation easily made and hard to be disproved by the accused party, you know, no matter how innocent they are. And the law is actually, and that being developed into an instruction for juries telling them to disbelieve women's stories. Now, <coughs> what's interesting, I think, is that even with that, the law remains probably the primary space for women to tell their stories, have their stories heard, and have them recognised as truth. So there is, there's always been a kind of dual element, I think, to feminist responses to the law, and I think in a way you have to have that, which is to try to decenter it and try just to you know point out how terrible an institution it is for judging sexual violence, but then also trying to make women's stories more hearable within it and to have a fair hearing and have women be recognised as truth-tellers, you know, rather than as always subject to disbelief and denial and to lies. And so I think 
one of the things that we don't talk about um, a lot in feminist discourse is the fact that for some women, you know, testifying at trial, you know, as a result of feminist critiques of law, as a result of feminist law reform, and also as a result of the fact that feminism has given women tools of analysis, for some women testifying at trial can actually be, you know, a very validating and empowering experience. You know, and it comes back to those stories that are tellable. So we're talking predominantly about white women, about middle class women telling stories of stranger rape. But, you know, if they can mobilize those kinds of narratives, then quite often they can get convictions, you know, and we know that in the legal system, we often talk about rape convictions as though they're all the same. But in fact, you know, rape cases that fit a very traditional kind of archetypal stranger rape narrative don't actually have very different conviction rates from other violent assaults. You know, they're not really the problem. The problem is that the vast majority of cases don't fit that particular narrative. And so for women who are speaking in that way or who can make their story fit in important ways into that kind of narrative, then the law can be very a very um, useful place. What's troubling, I think, is that often women do have to mobilize um, really conservative ideas around kind of sexual respectability, even ideas around kind of being able to portray the person who sexually assaulted them as a typical kind of criminal, you know, and they can, and they can use them to get a legal victory. And I think you see, you know, really interesting ways that women do that but the problem is that you know within the framework of the laws and within kind of the rules of the contest that's actually how you get a conviction you know you still don't get a conviction simply by asserting you know women's right to set their own bodily autonomy you know to navigate sex and sexuality on their own terms you know that doesn't succeed in law um so then in terms of what kind of room there is for the criminal law um I mean, I think, you know, I kind of have it both ways in a sense. I mean, I'm personally quite pessimistic or skeptical about it, but at the same time, you know, it is actually the tool that women have to seek not only, you know, redress or vengeance, but, you know, validation, justice, fairness, you know, and those kinds of ideas, um, that Claire McGlynn writes about in terms of, you know, kaleidoscopic justice, that actually if you think about, and again, it's this point of actually if you listen to survivors and you don't presume you already know the meaning of their stories, when people talk about what they want, it's a whole range of things. You know, and actually some people do want, you know, in a very straightforward way, this man who hurt them to suffer, you know, and that's completely understandable. A lot of women, you know, might want that, but actually what might be more important is to have their experience heard, believed, you know, to have a social, a legal, you know, affirmation that what happened to them shouldn't have happened, you know, and that there should be some redress and some balance for that. And they're actually quite different things. But as you were saying, I mean, we tend to think they're the same. Yeah. You know, and we tend to think, you know, it's only the, it's the punitive that symbolizes everything else when that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, so I think, and there are quite radical ideas for how we might change, you know, courts around sexual violence, whether having specialist courts, um, whether moving away from ideas of consent to focus more on things like harm and accountability, you know, ideas of restorative justice. I think that there always has to be, you know, a role for law, 
and a role for the criminal law unless we radically reconfigure that more generally because that is actually the space we have in our society to tell stories of harm and have them heard and recognised. But decades of law reform hasn't really improved the situation and so we need to think about it quite differently. And I think potentially thinking about it in terms of not only enabling women to tell their stories but asking you know under what conditions are those stories told under what conditions are those stories believed might allow us to begin to unpick it and change it a little bit as well yeah um a couple of things you said there i thought were quite interesting that i wanted to pick up on first i'll just say them actually so don't <laughs> forget them and then talk about i was thinking about when you mentioned restorative justice and it's another space that can create quite a lot of tension within you know feminist movements because of the you know, perceived power dynamics and mm. the inappropriateness of that kind of response. And I wondered what your thoughts were about that. And then when you were saying, I really like uh, Claire McGuinn's phrase of kaleidoscopic justice, I think it's brilliant. And I wondered, do you get a sense that even though you were saying, you know, some survivors want the punitive, others might want a range of other things, is there pressure within kind of feminist movements for it to be the former or like an assumption almost that the survivors speaking out should want punitive and that their voice should be used in order to seek that more punitive forms of justice. I think there's definitely an assumption and I think um, and I think it's understandable and the problem is that you know we're so limited in our imagining of what um, it means to take sexual violence seriously, what it means to respond to it that you know as you said it's often presented as the only kind of thing you know, but it doesn't help, for instance, with things like prevention, you know, it operates within a system in which, as we know, the criminal justice system targets, you know, perpetrators very unequally, you know, defines victims very unequally. And um, so it's a problem to presume that that is the model of justice. And it comes up against questions that you know, very complicated questions in sexual violence and also in domestic violence cases as well, where, you know, once you accept that a lot of sexual violence actually happens within ongoing relationships in the domestic sphere, you know, that not actually all survivors of violence even want to cut off a relationship with the person who's committed this violence against them. You know, some of them want to continue even to have a romantic and a sexual relationship. And so that complicates things, you know, a great deal. And I think the problem can be that there is this imperative that if you don't go through the criminal justice system, if you don't report, you're somehow, you know, failing, you know, that you're not actually doing what you should or what you're supposed to do, which I think, you know, which I think is really problematic when we know that the criminal justice system actually fails, you know, survivors systematically, you know, and this is, you know, true internationally. I don't think there's, you know, really a single kind of criminal justice system that anyone says is working around sexual violence. And yet, yeah, there is this pressure on women to engage with the criminal justice system no matter what. In terms of restorative justice, I think it is, I think it is a difficult question. Um, and they've done some experiments with restorative justice in Canada, particularly around sexual violence, um, that have actually gone quite well. But Again, I think, you know, it's not something that is going to work for everyone. It is something that when you're thinking about kind of gendered power dynamics, 
you know, it's very difficult. Um, and, you know, I don't think it actually works as a kind of overall solution. You know, models coming out, particularly of the US, around transformative justice and how, you know, you imagine accountability amongst people and within communities that is actually social rather than individual, I think, given the social nature of sexual violence, the fact that, you know, the problem with it so often is that it's not deemed to be deviant, you know, it's deemed to be kind of normal or, you know, there's no social agreement on that in, like, the majority of cases, you know, which is just something that comes up in the rugby case as well, you know. Yeah, yeah. And what, when you mentioned transformative justice there, what, what would that term involve or what, what might that look like? Well, it looks it looks like a lot of different things, most of which I think are quite experimental, but it comes predominantly out of the work of um, black feminists and um, prison activists and policing activists in the US. And, you know, it's the idea that particularly, you know, if you think about African-American communities, that they cannot look to the police, the prisons, the criminal justice system as a whole for justice, you know, in society as it stands. And so it argues that what you want is to go back to what justice means, which is something that we don't often think about, you know, in the criminal justice system, it's a term that we kind of just take for granted. And they say, you know, what justice means is, you know, healing and recognition for victims of harm. It means accountability for perpetrators, but it also means healing, recognition and accountability for a community and a society that has failed, you know, the people within it. And so it's an idea of justice that operates at a social level in order to change the conditions that enabled that harm to occur in the first place. So where, for instance, restorative justice, you know, might involve bringing a victim and a perpetrator together, potentially with other members of the community and talking about, you know, how these harms impacted them and how the perpetrator can do something about it. <coughs> Transformative justice might have elements of that, but would then also be about thinking, well, you know, what in our community needs to change so that if we're talking about sexual violence, you know, that we're not producing young men, older men, who this is how, you know, they relate romantically, sexually to women, you know, what might we change in terms of our education? What might we change in terms of, you know, the way that we think about, talk about sex and sexuality and romance, you know, that actually, and I think that's, to me, what's important, you know, I talked about um, culture before, that if we only operate at the level of the legal, then we don't engage with those kinds of cultural norms that actually perpetuate, you know, and normalise sexual violence or normalise, you know, um, what Nicole Gavey talks about is the cultural scaffolding of rape, you know, things like the idea that, you know, men should pursue sex and women should resist it, you know, all those kinds of things that we sometimes, I think, like to think about are old-fashioned but are very much still, you know, the underlying foundation of... Um, the way we think about sex and relationships. And I think, you know, along with a lot of other people, that in some ways the key to thinking about sexual violence is actually starting to think about sex differently. And by that I mean thinking about sex more socially, you know, bringing sex and intimacy and relationships, you know, into schools, you know, into 
educating young people into social dynamics, you know, more explicitly because they're always there, but we don't actually give people in our societies tools to communicate around sex, you know, tools to engage ethically around sex. Um, but then we just expect that everyone's going to know when something has gone wrong and what to do about it. And clearly we don't. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think that's so important. It's really good how you've, you know, identified the limits of the law, which is really important. It's good to critique these things and to, you know, point out what's failing, but it can also be difficult to imagine what's not there. And, mm. you know, I think you were really highlighting the importance of kind of radical reimaginings and yeah. not just being how can we tweak what we currently have but maybe taking a step back and being like well maybe the entire apparatus is broken that could be really difficult because you know how do you pursue one but also try in the meantime to make <coughs> we already have yeah. better you know there, there's that tension there as well and do you, do, you, do you grapple a little bit with that in your book yeah I do I mean the book um is more about kind of, yeah, more about the former, kind of thinking how do we radically reimagining, you know, how do we radically reimagine storytelling, narrative, you know, listening and making spaces for survivors and for changing the way that we relate politically and culturally to the problems around sexual violence. Um, it's less particularly about the law mm -hmm. and law reform. Um, there is a chapter specifically on law, but... You know, I think it's really, in a, in a sense, um, this is my PhD supervisor told me this actually, in a sense, you know, you can see law as a spectre behind the whole kind of book because it's always a spectre when women talk about sexual violence, you know, wherever they are, is, you know, how, how would this be framed by law? You know, how is this able or not able to be expressed in the criminal justice system? You know, and that's something that... I think has become a bit more of an explicit conversation in the aftermath of Me Too, you know, people telling stories that are framed, I think, quite explicitly by the people that tell them as, you know, either this wouldn't be recognised by the law or I don't know if it would be recognised by the law, you know, which is another thing with sexual violence that um, we've had these decades of law reform and a lot of women have sexual experiences that they don't, you know, they can tell were unwanted or wrong, but they don't know for sure if they were illegal or not. You know, and there's actually a lot of, you know, lack of understanding of the law. And I think that's also an issue. You know, how does the legal actually relate to the social when most people don't know the law explicitly? Yeah. I suppose that links back to what you were saying about education as well, mm. because I, you know, I think of perpetrators, you know, not knowing as well that they've done something illegal or that they've done something that's necessarily perceived as coercive by the person they experienced yeah. it and I think that can be a troubling reflection but also is an important one yeah. that it's entirely possible for a person to believe that they were raped and a person to believe genuinely that they did not rape them because of this you know the ambiguity around it and what where when does something become coercive mm. and that's exactly what you were saying because we don't give young people the tools to know yeah you know and narratives like well you know women resist sex and that's mm. part of the chase and all that if you have been entrenched in that kind of way of thinking I can see how it's it's possible to do something that's worse well I mean realize. you know Catherine McKinnon wrote about this in 1983 I think anyway um you know and she said 
that <laughs> it is perfectly possible, you know, for, as you say, you know, a woman to have an experience of coercive sex and a man to have an experience of, you know, normal sex. And she says the problem is that the law historically has always taken the man's point of view, you know. Yeah. And that there's no room within the law for acknowledging either that that's just a point of view, you know, because what the law does essentially is take a version of events and turn them into the truth, you know, a legal truth. And so in taking the man's point of view, it erases the woman's point of view and makes it illegitimate, you know, invalid. Um, and so can we imagine a situation in which the law no longer does that, you know, but does something else? And... That could be hard to imagine in, yeah. in what we currently have because you immediately run up against, well, presumptions of innocence mm. and the rights of the defence. So I suppose it speaks to the, the difficulties of something that's so interpersonal, something that, that there's rarely witnesses to. And how, how can the law hold that nuance while yeah. protecting you know, the rights of the accused that we hold very dearly within our legal system? So we circle back round to the limits yeah. of the law again. Yeah, we? exactly. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I think that that is, you know, you know, that is a question about the criminal justice system. You know, it is, I actually think necessarily so, a very blunt instrument, you know, and it always will be. And is it capable of providing an ethical framework for our most intimate and personal relationships. And I think clearly, no, you know, it's not. Mm -hmm. Is it necessary to have it as a safeguard around harms that are experienced in those relationships, you know, in the society in which we live as it currently stands? I think, yes, you know, it's very difficult to argue against that. But um, I do think and this is again comes back, you know, to the question of what we do as, you know, feminists, as people who want to change things, is if we can make the law, I think, a bit less central to our conversations in that sense, and accept that it is an imperfect instrument, you know, because I mean, this is the thing that people like um, Rose Corrigan's written. It's very U.S. focused, but I think a very good book on um, the feminist law reform project around rape, and she calls it um, the failures of success. You know, and so she says, you know, we have 50 years of, you know, intense, actually, law reform, you know, cross-jurisdictionally. It's one of the areas that's been most kind of, well, most radically, but also most consistently reformed, you know, since the early 1980s when you began to see jurisdictions bringing in, you know, much stricter kind of consent requirements and moving away from um, requirements around resistance and cooperation. But the problem is that... um, there's been all of these kinds of reforms, but the fundamental experience of women at trial, you know, conviction rates, um, attrition, none of these things have really changed much. And actually what you see is a system that's kind of self-balancing. So you'll have, you know, for police campaigns around reporting, you know, which we were talking about before, and you see rates of reporting go up, and then correspondingly you see rates of conviction go down. You know, so that in the end, we still end up with um, you know, cases falling out at different points of the system, but the overarching um, figures looking kind of depressingly similar. And, um, you know, so, so for Rose, it is a, you know, 
a project that's been successful in terms of getting some of the things that you know we thought we wanted but then a failure in terms of it not producing the outcomes that we thought that it would have and I think if you look more broadly than the law it's a bit more of a complicated picture because I think you know culturally and socially things have changed but then in important ways you know those changes again haven't had the outcomes that we've thought that they would have in terms of preventing or reducing sexual violence in terms of improving you know well I would say you know improving the kind of experiences of heterosexuality you know for women and for men you know over the yeah. past 50 years and radically changing that and so um and those are actually the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about you know if we want to go back to the original feminist project around rape which is this idea very much that a world without rape is possible you know and i think that's also something that we lose when the only kind of moral we see to these stories is a punitive one because it's really an idea that just these things will continue to happen and all we can do is punish them and we know that our criminal justice system that punishment doesn't relate to prevention it doesn't really even relate to individual deterrence let alone general deterrence and so when that's the only frame in which we're talking about the punitive apart from anything else it actually ignores this idea that you know if we think sexual violence is bound up with cultural norms and practices around sex then at some level that makes things very daunting but at another level it actually opens up the possibility that that can change you know, rather than simply that you can draw the line at a certain point where you punish or where you don't punish. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about the drop-off rate and the low conviction rate, about how that linked to what you'd said earlier about, you know, we need to interrogate assumptions about the empowerment or, you know, beneficial impact of speaking out. Mm. This assumption that it will be something that's inherently empowering if you're faced with this, you know, criminal justice system that's very unlikely to give you what you might have expected from it and it made me think of a question that I wanted to ask you about the reference that you make in your book to silence mm. as well and the benefits of having a more nuanced relationship with silence and that neither speaking out nor silence are inherently empowering or disempowering and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah so I mean that's that's one of the things um in terms of the kind of politics of speaking out that's in one of the later chapters um but, you know, a feminist slogan, a very famous feminist slogan is, you know, break the silence and the violence. And so, which means, you know, to speak. But what I was interested in was, you know, that it imagines silence as only ever oppressive. Um, and, you know, I spend a lot of time in the book trying to think about, you know, what is the relationship between silence, speech, and harm. And so one of the things that I say is when you actually listen to, this is gonna be another very long-winded answer. When, no, you no, actually, <laughs> when you actually, you know, listen to women's stories and narratives about speaking out, often the experience of sexual violence plays a quite, you know, it's a, plays a quite small role in the overall story. What's much bigger is, you know, feelings of stigma, of shame, you know, of not being, not having a way to, you know, have harm recognized, responded to, you know, and not just with punishment, but even with friends and family and things. And, you know, and so what is overcome when women speak is these kinds of social silences and these social pressures. And, you know, it's this experience of, you know, being silenced. And um, 
what I used to think about it is um, work that Leotard did around the Holocaust. And, you know, he talks about Holocaust deniers and he says, you know, what you have there is a particular form of silencing, which is, you know, if people come forward to testify to their harms, Holocaust deniers essentially say, you know, well, you say that there were gas chambers, but where are these eyewitnesses who saw them? If there are no eyewitnesses who saw them, then, you know, they can't be real. Then they say, okay, well, if there are eyewitnesses, you say that these were instruments of genocide, but how do people see them and still live? You know, so if we have, so you set up this impossible situation. And this, I think, you know, is the experience that women face when, you know, they come before the law and also when they speak um, socially and in the media that, you know, it's constantly, you know, you led him on or, you know, you, the story doesn't mean what you say it is. So you can speak and not be heard or recognized. And he says, you know, what it is, is it's like you're speaking a different language. And he says, that's what makes a victim. A victim isn't something that someone, isn't someone who something bad is done to because that person can become a plaintiff, you know, if they have a space where they can speak and be heard and that harm can be recognized. A victim is someone who is deprived of the ability to speak and have the harm that's done to them recognized. So, you know, if we think about what's harmful in silence is actually being that, you know, that inability to have what you say, your story, your experience be heard, be recognized, be responded to in a just way, then I think, you know, then we can think about silence itself as a very different kind of thing because then we can think about, you know, telling your story and having it heard and recognized and not having to tell it again, you know, the idea that this experience, you know, could be responded to, could be responded to, you know, with justice and, you know, that you could reach a point where you no longer feel you have to speak, you know, or other people have spoken about, um, there's an author I really like who talked about her experience of being sexually assaulted as a child, you know, and she says it was really important to her to speak, but it was really important to her that before she spoke, you know, she spent many years working through thinking about the experience, actually thinking about what it meant to her and what she wanted as some kind of resolution for her. And she said, you know, that she was only able in the end to speak about it in the way that she did and in a way that was useful for her because she had this period of silence, you know, before. Um, and, and it relates back to that broader question around, you know, can we imagine a world where, you know, sexual violence isn't the problem that it is now and that we wouldn't need this project, you know, of speaking out. And this is one of the things that, um, which we haven't talked about, one of the things I talk about in um, talking about the campaign around Me Too and Alyssa Milano, you know, the Hollywood actor who was very involved in kind of sending the first tweet that popularized the campaign in, I can't remember the exact, in the aftermath of the original, um, you know, kind of, tweet going viral she set up this kind of public campaign called keep talking you know and it's this idea that you know we should keep telling our stories and you know that women just need to speak and they need to speak again they need to speak more and I think um you know at some level you can understand that but at another level you know it's kind of this nightmare vision of having to continually reiter you know, reiterate and tell these stories of suffering. And this idea that we, again, that we'll always have to keep telling these same stories. Um, whereas Tarana Burke, you know, who was 
the African-American activist who originally came up with the phrase, you know, and used it in her community organizing, has a very different idea around speech. You know, and she says, you know, we've been talking and actually we've talked before. And this is another thing that I say in my book, you know, this isn't the first time we've spoken, you know, that there are these outbreaks of speech. And um, if we only keep speaking, then we're never going to actually do the things that require kind of cultural change. You know, and this is a, something that another kind of survivor activist said, you know, she became very famous in the late 1980s. She was telling her story of sexual violence. And then several years later, you know, and she thought things were going to change. And then several years later, she reflected back and she said, you know, I now see that I and many other women have been breaking the silence only to have it swallow us back up again. You know, and so I think, again, that comes back to that question of, you know, what is silencing? What is the problem with it? And that there's these different, you know, there's very different ways of being quiet, you know. Yeah. So. Uh, I could listen to you talk all day, but I get to listen to you again very shortly at your presentation. So I'll just ask one more question, which is more about uh, process and substance. Mm. And I was thinking when I was reading your introduction about how this was your PhD and it became this book that looks a bit different from how yeah. it started. And I wondered if we had research students listening, what kind of insights or advice you would share about that process? Well, I can. I mean, I think... Um, I think, to be honest, I'm not necessarily the best person <laughs> to share advice about racism. So I finished my PhD quite a long time ago. Um, and so the book looks very different to the PhD. There's a number of reasons that I didn't publish the PhD straight away. Partly was about um, the pressures of the job market. And I was um, working, basically um, supporting myself, just teaching and had a few years where I had very little time to do any kind of research. The other thing was that um, the PhD was framed very differently. I did my PhD in literature and cultural studies. Um, so the PhD was originally framed around um, the story of Arabian Nights and um, Scheherazade, who is the kind of narrator and heroine of that story, um, lives in a, the kind of ancient Persian kingdom and the Sultan has a wife, basically his wife betrays him with a slave. And so after that, he decides women can't be trusted. And so he has the wife beheaded. And then every, I think it's every day, but he marries a new woman, you know, and has sex with her and then beheads her. Um, and so Scheherazade, who is the daughter of the kind of Sultan's advisor, eventually steps forward and says, you know, I'll marry the Sultan. And, um, because she wants to stop things from happening. So what she does is she marries the Sultan and um, before they're going to sleep, she tells him a story, but she doesn't finish the story. And so, you know, he says, okay, I'm not going to kill you tomorrow because I want to hear the rest of the story. And she continues to do this for a thousand and one nights. And that's where you get the thousand and one nights of stories, um, you know, which have all kinds of famous stories like Aladdin and his lamp and Alibaba and the 40 feet thieves. Um, but, you know, what I was interested in was the fact that this is actually a story about rape and sex, because mm -hmm. at the end of the story, so after A Thousand and One Nights, he realises that, you know, he loves her and he wants to properly marry her and he doesn't want to have the threat of execution hanging over her every night. But she's had three children by this point. So, you know, she's been married to this kind of, you know, murderer, <laughs> 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 you know, and sleeping with him and having sex with him for A Thousand and One Nights. But... Um, 
but telling these stories in order to kind of prevent the worst of the violence. So anyway, this is, again, very long-winded, but what I realised um, after a time is that, you know, I still think that's a really interesting story and a really interesting metaphor, but having the book kind of framed completely around that didn't actually... Um, didn't do what I wanted the book to do, which was, you know, to engage in kind of debates around feminism, sexual violence, because it was called Shahrazad's Daughters, you know, and I said, well, and this is eventually um, a friend of mine, a colleague, a more senior colleague said to me, well, you know, no one who's interested in the debates that you're talking about in your book is going to pick up a title of Shahrazad's Daughters, and no one who picks up that title is going to think that they're going to be looking at, you know, what's in the book. And so that was then... A process of thinking you know what actually did I want the book to do and who did I want to speak to and those kinds of things which would then took you know a bit longer in terms of you know reframing it so I suppose to come back to your question with advice I think that um I think that while it's probably very good to get your PhD published quickly it's also good to think that they are, you know, they are different documents and they operate in different genres, you know, to something that I'm quite interested in. And when you publish a PhD as a book, that is a much more, I suppose, you know, it's much more about entering into dialogue. And so it is much more about thinking, you know, you frame the PhD in a way that talks to your examiners, gets you through, but I think then if you want to turn it into particularly, rather than a series of articles, a book, what you hope, I think, is that that's going to enter a set of academic debates and questions. And so it's about really thinking, you know, how do I rework this in a way that puts me into dialogue with the people that I want to be in dialogue with? And it took me a long time to get to that point, even though it seems quite obvious, I suppose. So... Um, that would really be the biggest thing that I learned. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, thank you so much. Thank you, Tanya. Um, yeah, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events brought to you by the law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle, and LawPod is funded by Queen's Law School and the Queen's Annual Fund. You can follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, at QBLawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org and please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today you can find us on itunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts thanks for listening and this was lawpod